Hey everyone, welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name's Caitlin. I'm a writer, a blogger, I consider myself a dreamer. Um, I'm someone who loves literature, I love art, poetry, and I also have developed in the last few years or so a really intense passion for cinema. And I created this podcast because I live in a rural area where there isn't really a cinephile culture. I don't really even have an art house theater um, to go to. So I really needed an outlet and a way to share how I feel about movies that I watch. And so that's the function of this podcast and that's sort of the void that it fills in my life. Um, If you're a returning listener, I really do appreciate your uh, support and that you listen to the podcast and find value in it. If you're wondering about the title, it comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago. At the time I was really obsessed with films, like I usually am. And in the email I said, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. So I thought that was the perfect phrase to encapsulate how I feel about cinema, how I'm always thinking about it, and how it is a big part of my life at this point. This podcast does have a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. I have various levels where you can donate money um, each month to help me sustain the podcast. I do have to pay to keep it going. I have to pay for storage. So there's a lot of different rewards that I offer. You can recommend a film to me and I'll watch it and review it on the podcast. Um, You can vote on things. Uh, You can get access to a mini podcast that I do, which is about 10 to 20 minutes long, um, where I talk about various issues with film or I talk about films. One of the rewards is that you can get a shout out in each episode and so I would like to do my shout outs and um, so I just want to give a shout out to supporters Carolyn, Michelle, Jesse, Olivia, and Feminist Overlord. Thank you all very much for supporting the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Today's episode is going to be a little bit of a departure from previous episodes. I usually focus on art house cinema, world cinema, very elite, prestigious films. And today's episode is one that I've been thinking about for a while. It's sort of like an episode that I've always wanted to do. And it's the culmination of just so much for me. Like, I am someone who's very obsessed with the 90s, the 1990s. Um, I was born in 1989, so my childhood was pretty much the 90s, the early 2000s. I have, and a lot of people don't know this except really close people that I know, um, I have an obsession with TV movies, with made-for-TV movies, specifically the ones that air on the Lifetime Network. Now, for me, not all TV movies are made equal. 
they they have to be from the 90s usually sometimes the late 80s or the 80s are good but i have an obsession with made for tv movies from the 1990s this is very real this is i grew up on these films i used to watch them at night when i was young um so i've always wanted to talk about some of these films and so that's what this episode is about. It's about two films in particular. One called Lying Eyes from 1996 and another called She Fall Alone from 1995. I want to talk about these films um, for many reasons. First, I love these films. I grew up on them. I've seen them multiple times. I have a lot of complicated feelings and emotions about them now that I am older and I'm able to watch them with a more critical lens. Um, I just rewatched them actually. They're on YouTube if you're interested in ever watching them. These are films very much about gender, about women, about violence against women. Um, they have their good and their bad and I'm going to get all into it and all into that messy stuff. I think these films are worth talking about because they are seen by the masses even now. There's the Lifetime Movie Network that shows old films. Now these movies were not necessarily made by the Lifetime Network and I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Um, these were maybe made by NBC, ABC, CBS in the 90s. I, I'm not really sure when Lifetime started to make their own films, but some of these are just made-for-TV movies by other networks, but now they have started to be shown on the Lifetime network, and that's how they get played. That's sort of, sort of how they have this second life. So re-watching these films, and as I said, I just finished them tonight, I like to talk about things when they're fresh in my mind it was like going back into the past it was crazy it's like I remember myself and my life when these films came out um, I have a huge nostalgia for the 1990s I love the music I love the movies I love um, the fashion I love the way women dressed in the 90s with like baggy jeans and combat boots and jean jackets and um, like floral dresses and sp with spaghetti straps and then like a white t-shirt underneath you know I'm all about the 90s because that really was sort of the best time in my life personally once the 2000s came my life pretty much fell apart um, I had a lot of things happen in the, in the 2000s for me so why have I chosen to talk about these movies? Two things prompted me. Um, well, first let me say this. I'm not going to say these are feminist films. You know, I think too, too many things get called feminist sometimes when they're not really feminist. So I don't want to argue for that, but I do want to argue for the value of these films, for the value of made-for-TV movies from the 90s which have often gotten a bad reputation. I think there are some feminist messages in them, and I think it's worth looking at them because at the time when they aired, 
I would think a substantial amount of women watched them or a substantial amount of people watched them and they may have a second life now if they're show if they're shown on Lifetime or the Lifetime Movie Network and they're on YouTube with like thousands of views so these films live on and I think they have something to say and I think there are perhaps feminist messages in there somewhere but I'm not gonna say the whole entire film is feminist but as a feminist when I rewatched them, I found some interesting aspects of them. So recently, what has prompted me to do this episode is just my sheer rage over things nowadays when it comes to women's issues and violence against women. So where I live recently, three people were gunned down by a white male. I mean, this is usually, you know, this happens every day, these mass shootings. And it turns out that, of course, it was her ex-husband. She had had a restraining order against him. And he came and he killed her. She was living with her sister and her sister's husband. And they got murdered too. So three people were murdered. He turned the gun on himself, of course. This is such a familiar narrative, isn't it? And as soon as I heard about the shooting, I said, I bet it's going to be connected to a boyfriend or a husband. And I was right. Because violence against women continues to happen. Women are continuously reminded of our second-class citizenship, that our bodies are not our own, that our bodies are there to be violated and harmed by men. Um, and then I also read a story in BuzzFeed probably a month ago about Megan Rondini who went to college. She, she was from Texas. She went to college in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And Alabama has like this archaic law that if you're raped, you have to prove that you fought back, that you resisted your attacker in some way. So she's raped, she goes to the police, and apparently she didn't fight back hard enough for these police officers. And they would not pursue the suspect that she said raped her. Um, he's a very powerful person and a rich person in Alabama, and his family is. And in the process of reporting her rape, she became a suspect because when the rape happened, she she ran out of the house. She had gone to his house um, and she ran out of it. She went to his car. She found a gun. She took the gun for her own protection. And so they were basically going to charge her with theft for taking his gun. So because of everything she went through, the trauma she went through, they they did not prosecute him, you know. She was treated abominably, you know, and she ended up killing herself recently. So she's gone. And she she did everything that our culture tells her to do, which is to go and report the attack and go to the police. She did that. And she got treated terribly and she had to kill herself because she was so devastated and she really struggled she had to drop out of college she really felt like her life had just been so destroyed um, by that both the rape 
and how she was treated afterwards. And of course we have the recent Cosby verdict where he basically had a hung, hung jury about sexual assault. And a juror came out and basically said that the victim, why did she go to his house? Why was she dressed a certain way? Why, why did she have bath salts or something? So we have this constant familiar narrative of women being blamed for their own rapes. Now, one of the films that I'm going to talk about is about rape. So there's a trigger warning for that, obviously. The other one is not about rape, but I still want to talk about it. So I think these cases in particular remind us that domestic violence is still very prevalent. And yet it's not talked about. It's the, there's, there's such a silence surrounding it. So in the 1990s especially, Lifetime got a certain reputation, and I think maybe it still has that reputation, um, for these made-for-TV movies that they showed. And it got a bad reputation because women were continuously viewed as victims. That they were, all these movies about women were often about women being brutalized, about women being raped, women in domestic violence relationships, women being attacked by the men in their life. And it sort of got a bad reputation for showing women as victims or women always in crisis. Um, and that's a valid critique, you know, that all of these films. Uh, were about women as victims. But at the same time, while I think it's important to not define women as victims or define women by their pain, at the same time, we cannot deny that women are profoundly vulnerable to violence in ways that men are not vulnerable to it. Women are still harmed by men, they are raped by men, they are attacked by men, they fear men on a pretty regular basis. I mean, you ask any woman living on a college campus if she has mace on her, and she's probably going to say yes, but I don't think men would say that. So it's always in the back of women's head that they shouldn't be in dark parking lots, that they shouldn't be in parking garages, that they shouldn't walk alone, blah, 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 blah. We cannot deny that women are profoundly vulnerable to, to, to violence. So while these films have gotten a bad reputation, I would argue for all their flaws, and those flaws are many, and I'm going to talk about that, at least they made that violence visible, that this violence was present in the public discourse and the public imagination through these films. Whereas nowadays, I would argue, we do not have the same level of visibility. We have this sense, I think, that that doesn't happen anymore. That there was this time when women were attacked and violated and victimized and that we've come so far. And I think the election shows us. I think the statistics continue to show us that that is not true, that women are still fighting, that women are still being harmed by men on a constant basis. 
and it, women are not able to report their rapes. They're not able to get rapes prosecuted. Um, they're not able to escape abusive relationships, or they're killed by husbands and spouses. This is still happening, but it's not visible the way it once was. I can't name a film, really, that discusses it, or a TV show. I would say most recently, the Netflix show The Keepers really delved into violence against women and sexual violence against women. I would say a recent documentary like Private Violence talked about violence against women. And I would say Big Little Lies um, is the only thing in recent memory I can think of that directly confronted and talked about and made visible the violence against women and how it can be subtle and how it can be really complicated. But that's not a lot. I wouldn't say that's a lot. I don't think it's constantly in the public consciousness the way it should be. So, I think these films are important. But why I also think they're important is because when we talk about these TV movies, we talk about how women are portrayed in these films. But what I kind of want to talk about with this podcast is how men are portrayed. And I'd like to focus a bit more on that is that yes women in these films can be portrayed as victims but I think these films also show something about men that we would rather not confront at times or about masculinity and patriarchy which is the way that men act and the way that men treat women and I'm not saying that all men are predators or all men commit sexual violence um, but we live in a profoundly violent and patriarchal culture and you see that in the way that women are treated when they report their rapes how they're treated in in romantic relationships so as i talk about these films i would ask you to keep that in mind too is not just how are the women portrayed but how how are men being portrayed how is masculinity being confronted or interrogated perhaps or at least exposed and made visible. So the first film I want to talk about is She Fought Alone. It came out in 1995. Um, it stars Tiffany Amber Thiessen and Brian Austin Green. Tiffany Amber Thiessen was in quite a few of these made-for-TV movies and I love Tiffany. I'm a huge fan of hers. I've probably seen all her made-for-TV movies. Brian Austin Green, I he was in a few too. He was in a few that I had seen. This is a film written and directed by men. So I will say that, that up front, you know, that's important, you know. Tiffany plays a girl named Caitlin, and Brian Austin Green plays a guy named Ethan. So... This is a story about a girl who's raped in a small town and how the town and how the school she goes to reacts to that rape. So it's a small town where football is king, where it's everything. Caitlin, and I will say this too, I think this was the first time I heard my name in mainstream, in a mainstream movie, Caitlin. When I was growing up, Caitlin was not a common name. People never knew how to pronounce it correctly like they would say Catlin 
They would say all kinds of stuff. It was weird. So Caitlin is the main character. She wants to be part of the cool crowd in school. Um, the film opens with her doing her makeup and getting dressed for she's going to the to a football game after the football game she's taken to this sort of barn or something in in the country this is like a rural small town life it was filmed in texas and it's very i think authentic to that and um so she's going to this this sort of on the edge of town this place this like big warehouse or something and there's going to be an initiation ceremony for her to join this cool cool kid crew they're called the crew throughout the film so it's all about you know high school and the cliques and the groups and um and all of that there's like this hazing i guess you could say they recreate the prom scene and carry it's sort of bizarre but it's also kind of dreamy too everyone's in these poofy ball gowns there's paper stars hanging from the ceiling it's really sort of this magical thing and as caitlin stands up on stage the there there's like red red stuff like poured onto her so i think it's like raspberry sauce or something she laughs she loves it um it's it's this odd scene really like i don't think kids really did this in the 90s right but it is what it is when you watch these films you just have to kind of go with it that this is strange but it's interesting there's a guy there his name is jace and he's going to be an important part of this story he comes on to caitlin he desires caitlin and he makes that very apparent to her but she's not interested in him she's interested in ethan who's played by Brian Austin Green. Caitlin really shows her assertiveness. She shows her desire. She's very much an active participant in her sexuality in that she pursues Ethan. She goes to him. They have sex together. Jace, Jace comes across them having sex together and watches. This is a somewhat, you know, sexual film, really. Um... But she's very in love with Ethan and she's not afraid to be sexual to explore her sexuality um, really uh, the football players in this film really get away with everything they're protected by the principal um, Caitlin has a complicated relationship with her mom her mom's a single mom Caitlin has a younger sister so I think that's sort of an important aspect of the film too is her relationship with her mother. I'll talk more about that later. What's interesting what I do like about this film is that I felt like it showed the more subtle ways that guys can hurt women or how they can act towards women because at the beginning Jace is not violent. He he doesn't start off violent from the start but he gradually turns violent. He does things that are uncomfortable he doesn't really respect caitlin's boundaries her refusals you know at one point he grabs her and he says that because she had sex with ethan she should have sex with him um but caitlin stands up for herself she fights his advances um we can also see slut shaming in this film because caitlin has sex with ethan 
she is already immediately branded a slut and a whore. She's already seen as easy, as available, as her body being available to any man that wants to have it, including Jace. Caitlin really connects to Ethan. You know, Ethan and Ethan is like her in that he wants to escape this small town. He doesn't like living there. His mom's disabled. He works on his car a lot. Like, you can tell that they sort of connect through their mutual desire to escape this small town. They really dream of the outside world, the world outside this town, and they really do dream of escape. So there is a rape scene in this film. And, um, happens when Jay shows up at Caitlin's house. He tries to apologize for his previous behavior. He convinces her to let him in. And it sort of starts to gradually become uncomfortable. He asks her to hold his hand. He asks her for a kiss. He says, if you kiss me, I'll leave. Um, she really is trying to placate him. She's just trying to sort of, you know, get him to leave her alone. Like I think a lot of women do. Um... And he starts to attack her. He calls her a little tease. Now her sister is in the other room. Her mom's not at home. Her little sister's in her bedroom. Um, Jace grabs Caitlin. He takes her into a bedroom. The sister calls out like, are you okay? Or what's going on? And Jace threatens to rape the little sister if Caitlin doesn't comply to his demands and doesn't pretend like everything's okay so in this moment Caitlin is really trying to protect her little sister um it's it's a very difficult scene and it's just difficult I mean I think any rape scene is difficult to watch honestly and um but he rapes her and course she's saying no she's crying she she doesn't want to you know do that and um of course he doesn't care and um you know when I thought when I saw this rape scene I thought immediately about the Cosby thing about the jurors saying oh well she went to his house it's like well just because you're in the same house or you're in the same room together I mean these are just ridiculous ideas about about women, aren't they? I mean, just because I'm in the same room with a man somewhere, whether it's my house or his or whoever's, that does not mean that I consent or that I say that it's okay to have sex or, or I mean, I just, I really can't understand people that think this way. Caitlin tells her mom the next day that she was raped and it's a very disturbing scene because the mother does not want to believe it. Um, the mother thinks that, you know, Caitlin has invited this guy in and had sex in the house. She basically says that Caitlin was asking for it. She says that Caitlin let him in. So what did she expect to happen? And for me, I felt like the mother was sort of this mouthpiece in a way saying all the things that are really misogynistic and patriarchal, patriarchal culture tells us about women who are raped, that they deserved it, that they asked for it, that they invited it, that they are to blame. 
And I felt like the mother, when she was saying those things, was sort of articulating sort of our cultural view of women who are raped. You know, but Caitlin is not going to back down. She is very ferocious in standing up for herself. And even though the school turns against her, her friends turn against her, she is very steadfast. Like, she's in public at one point. She's at a restaurant and Jace is there. And, of course, everybody in the crew believes Jace. But she says in public, she says, you raped me. And she throws a milkshake in Jace's face. But, of course, everybody believes Jace. You know, they always believe the man. They always give the man the benefit of the doubt. There's another powerful scene. And, of course, Ethan's part of this. Ethan doesn't believe her. And so her relationship with Ethan becomes very complicated and very problematic as this film goes on. And I'm going to talk more about it in a moment. But Ethan is part of all this. He believes Jace. He's on Jace's side. He thinks that Caitlin's a slut, you know. He thinks, um, and, and when I say slut, I don't condone this word. I don't call women sluts. I don't believe that women should be shamed for their sexuality. I'm saying it because it's being lobbed at her. This is what she's being called. Um, so he thinks that Caitlin cheated on him or something, that it was consensual sex when it wasn't. There's another powerful scene where Caitlin goes to the hospital about the next day after the rape. She goes up to a nurse and she says, is it rape if I let him in? Is it rape if he's a friend? She keeps asking and then the nurse says, did you say no? And she says, I said no. And the nurse says, no means no. But I would also argue, and I would go much further, that even if you don't say no, I mean, not everybody says no in that way. They may say, stop. They may say, I don't want to do this. They may be crying. You know, I don't think it should be totally defined by, well, did you say no? There are other ways that women resist, you know, an assault and other ways that women indicate that they don't want to engage in sexual activity or or to be raped so but it was a powerful scene i thought you know where caitlin herself is trying to figure out how she feels about it because she knows well i did let him in the house so she is internalizing all of that you know it doesn't matter if you let him in it, it doesn't matter but, of course, people tell her, oh, well, you let him in. Her mother said it, you know. Well, what did you expect to happen? As though, you know, she was inviting someone to rape her. You know, it's it's a horrific way. She gets examined by the doctor. The doctor says that there's no indication of rape. I, I guess that there's no, like, physical, violent, you know, evidence. Um... So she knows that it's going to be very difficult to go to the police and to try to prosecute the rape. So she knows that. It, that She knows that she doesn't have that evidence that our court system needs. And, our, and our, really our court system doesn't know how to deal with rape. And it's just... And the people that we put on juries are not educated about what happens to a woman when she's raped. They don't understand that sometimes you freeze, that sometimes you don't resist in a certain way because you're trying to comply and you're trying to just let it be over with. You know, they don't understand, well, why would you talk to him the next day? Why would you text him? 
there's a lot that people don't understand about trauma and about what a woman feels, what a woman goes through when she's raped. And I almost feel like we need an we need education about that that women react to trauma in different ways, that women react to to the act of being raped in different ways, that it is dependent on the situation, you know. At one point, the principal says, boys will be boys. The, on, on the front of the school, they spray paint, Caitlin is a slut. So the whole, the people in the town turn against her. Everybody at the school turns against her. Even Ethan, he doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe her. So they know that they can't really go to the police or get any kind of prosecution. So they start to, to change their focus to the school and to the school how it allows this sexual harassment of Caitlin to happen you know it allows the stuff to be spray painted things to be put on the walls in the bathroom so they talk about title nine and how that is put in place to protect girls from sexual harassment in school they call in a civil rights investigator a person to look into what's happening at the school and how Caitlin's being treated by the school. And they decide that they're going to sue the school for allowing that sexual harassment against her. At one point, Caitlin's lured by a friend, um, and the crew ends up cutting her hair off. Ethan is involved in this. He's involved in all of this harassment against Caitlin. I really felt like this film was sort of indicting both rape culture and the systems of power like schools that enable um, rape culture and enable the harassment against women. So I think that's something good that the film does is that it it really shows how the school didn't protect her at all, you know. At one point Jace does tell Ethan that Caitlin fought back and that he basically raped her. So now, all of a sudden, Ethan believes Caitlin because Jace admitted what he did. Um, I mean, it's just so, like, ridiculous. Um, and I was thinking about Jace as a character as I watched this, and I really felt like he really was the embodiment of so much of American violence, of American masculinity. He loves violence. He needs to dominate. But they keep saying in the film repeatedly, Ethan says it and Caitlin says it, that Jace is wired wrong or he's wired differently. And I felt like this was a missed opportunity because I felt like they were trying to make Jace seem like this this defective person, this sort of isolated thing, as though our whole culture and our whole society doesn't create men like this. You know, in this way, I felt like the film sort of let society off the hook and sort of makes it seem like, oh, well, it's just something wrong with Jace. When Ethan is complicit in all the harassment against Caitlin, but they offer Ethan as almost this more palatable version of masculinity. Oh, he protects, he takes care of his disabled mom. He, he fiddles with his car. He wants to he dreams of leaving the town, you know. They make him a much more sympathetic character. Even though he may not have raped Caitlin, 
but he actively participates in her public humiliation and harassment. Ethan is sort of set up as the good guy, you know, the sensitive guy. And, um, and Caitlin forgives him. Caitlin kisses him. She renews her relationship with him after he comes to her and says that he believes her now that Jace confessed to him. And I thought this was extremely problematic. And actually, I didn't even remember this part. So I only saw this when I rewatched it tonight. And I thought it was very problematic that this guy is complicit in the harassment against her. And she forgives him. She renews a relationship with him. I thought that was like such a terrible part of the film. Like, I'm just going to be honest about that. As much as I think there's good things about this film, I think that aspect is really disturbing. Ethan does come forward and he admits his role in the harassment. Jace does the same thing. Jace loses a college scholarship because of the harassment. And the school officials say that they will change how they do things. So by her bringing the lawsuit, I do think Caitlin has changed things a little bit and, and maybe maybe helped the next girl, you know. Caitlin leaves the town. She's going to junior college. So she has her car packed up and she leaves. And of course, she goes by to see Ethan and kisses Ethan goodbye. It's not really clear if they're going to keep dating or if it's over between them, but she's obviously forgiven him. It's just very strange. You know, the town is really portrayed as sort of this small-minded place with like very backward ideas about things. And you get the sense that Caitlin is really escaping that um, by leaving. I'm just going to take a drink of water. So, so of the two films I'm talking about, I think this one sort of has the most relevance to things happening in our culture right now with rape culture, with, you know, the several high profile cases about rape. The one of um, the Stanford swimmer, I think his name was Brock, and he had raped a girl by a dumpster and and she gave a very powerful speech at the trial and he only got six months and then there was another one recently um there, there's just been various cases but Cosby's sort of been the most high profile lately so when I was watching this film I sort of couldn't help but think of that really you know but again, I would I would argue that I think this film is showing masculinity in a certain way. It's not just about how Caitlin is portrayed. She's portrayed as both victim and as someone who is fighting back. In the title, she fought alone. She's she's fighting back. She sues the school. But in the character of Jace, especially. We see toxic masculinity. We see just this embodiment of American masculinity, very violent, the degradation of women, you know. So 
I think the film is interesting in that way. I've outlined what I like about it, what I don't like about it. It is on YouTube. It's called She Fought Alone. It was made in 1995 if you want to check it out. But this is a film I have seen many times. Um, I'm a big fan of Tiffany Amber Thiessen. But again, I think it, you know, it has its good and its bad. So I think when you watch these films, you have to, you have to take the good and the bad, I think. So the second film I want to talk about is called Lying Eyes, and it was made in 1996. This one's interesting because it was written by a man, but it's directed by a woman named Marina Sargenti. This film has been an obsession of mine for years. I mean, I first saw it when I was younger, probably in the 1990s, and I I watch it just about every year. I, I, I also, I also have to talk about these Lifetime films or these made-for-TV movies. There is a pleasure in watching them. I can't describe it. It's, some of them really engage in, in fantasies, I think, that a lot of women have. Um, there's something very romantic about some of them. There's, there is a real pleasure in watching them. They're kitsch at times. They're campy at times. Um, you know, the women are beautiful in them. You know, I thought Tiffany Amber Thiessen was just drop-dead gorgeous in She Fought Alone. You know, it's there's just something very pleasurable about watching these films. I can't explain it. I still watch them. Some of them are very suspenseful. They're like thrillers. And so, yeah, I just have to say that. I love Lying Eyes. It stars an actress named Cassidy Ray. She did quite a few Lifetime films. She even did one film about where she played a rape victim, actually. She's blonde. She looks like a supermodel. I mean, she's one of the most gorgeous women I've ever seen, personally. And in this film, she is stunning. She's probably about 20 years old. She plays an 18-year-old girl. Um... And this is about a girl who has an affair with a man and how she is, it's a thriller, and how she is stalked um, by one of his former lovers. And so that's what it's about and it, the gist of it. Um, it opens with girls in a gymnasium as cheerleaders. They're dancing. And and so Cassidy plays a girl named Amy. And she's a cheerleader, so we see her dancing. She's dancing provocatively, of course. And, you know, we see the girls, uh, the cheerleaders' panties when their skirts go up. And so it's a bit of a sexualized opening, I thought, um... And we see a guy in the audience, an older man. This is going to be Derek. His name's Derek Bradshaw. And he's 33. And he's watching. He's in the gymnasium. I guess it's like a basketball game or something. And he's watching uh, these girls dance. And... Um, and so the next scene is like the girls are in the locker room. So 
I mean, there's certainly a sexualization going on here, of course, but at the same time, I really loved the way these girls were in this movie. They're very smart. They're talking about boys. Um, there's such an intelligence about the girls, and I thought that it was a... I thought the dialogue was good in the film. I mean, sometimes with these TV movies, you don't get the best dialogue or the best acting. But I think the ones in the 90s are actually pretty well written and actually have decent acting in them. But they're in the locker room and they're talking about how boys their age are much more immature than they are. And, um, and so next we see Amy in her car and the Cranberries, uh, their song Dreams is playing, which I love. That's such like a quintessential, like 90s song, isn't it? You know, I love that film. I mean, I, mean, I love that song. Well, and lo and behold, somebody crashes into the back of her car, and it happens to be the guy from the gymnasium, Derek. So this is, of course, his way of making contact with Amy. Um, so he's already set up, I think, as this very predatory guy. You know, I think the audience can, can sense his predatory nature, and I don't think Amy can, because he puts on a really good show a really good show um and he says oh my name's Derek Bradshaw I'm a lawyer you know whatever the costs are for the car for the repair I'll cover it so we can tell he's wealthy we can tell he's very good looking and of course you, I, you know Amy is immediately infatuated I think like uh Tiffany Amber Thiessen's character in She Fought Alone Amy has a, has a mom who's single. She's a single mom. She works in real estate she, to support Amy and herself. Amy's just this really confident girl. Like, I really liked Amy as a character. She goes to get the car, to pick up the car. It's been repaired. Of course, he paid for it. And he replaced her radio with a CD player in the car. And there's a stack of CDs. And um, he even mentions Hootie and the Blowfish. So this is like such a quintessential 90s film. I just love it. I love watching these 90s films. But really, Derek sort of embodies, I think, what many women won't. Um, or especially women in the 90s, I would say. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but he's nice, he comes off sensitive, he's very wealthy, he's going to take care of you, he's going to lavish you with gifts. He's really playing up that fantasy with Amy, I think. And I think Amy is falling for it, like a lot of women do, you know. Like I say, there's a pleasure in watching these films because I think they they engage with some of these fantasies that women might have about romance and about men and and wanting these relationships where they're taken care of where they're lavished with gifts and attention and it's really romantic you know and you can tell like as we know earlier amy thinks guys her age are immature so she loves being with an older man and I sort of remember how when I was a teenager and I was young, you know, I was very attracted to older men or, or, you know, always looking at guys who were much older than me. And so I think that's something that's really relatable because girls too tend to be a bit more mature. 
and um you know i thought that was interesting i mean she's definitely attracted to him even though he's in his 30s and she's 18 but i found that completely believable because i think when you are a teenage girl you are sort of attracted to older men sometimes some some girls you know they go to his beach house he has a telescope where they look at the stars he buys her lingerie that she puts on and she looks gorgeous she looks like a supermodel you know we we vicariously live through amy i think that's sometimes what these films are about too is that you know tiffany amber Thiessen's gorgeous cassidy ray is gorgeous and so as women when we're watching these movies i'm just speaking from my perspective and why i find pleasure in watching these films sometimes is that we vicariously live through them that oh you know they're so beautiful and they're with men and and um i think there's something of that going on and oh and it's so romantic i mean they start to kiss at the beach house and she sort of seems unsure and this guy he he knows how to lay it on thick and he says, oh, we don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. You know, we can. I can just hold you. It's like something out of a romance novel. I mean, it's like he has, it's like he has read these romance novels. And I would say maybe that's why I or other women like these TV movies. It's maybe similar to a romance novel in a way of like the romance and the courtship and stuff. I don't know. But it's sort of this every every woman's fantasy, right? Oh, we don't have to do anything you don't want to do. I'll be gentle. I'll just hold you. You know, he, he comes off like as this tender man, but also the, like this passionate lover, right? So it's like it makes you melt. I mean, I think it makes some women just melt. Because I think in a culture in which women have to deal with male violence, on a regular basis I think women get a lot of pleasure or a lot of comfort or relief out of seeing portrayals of love or portrayals of men as kind and gentle even if that's not their reality there is like a fantasy that takes place or sort of a dream of that like I sort of thought that was why I loved boy bands so much when I was younger and I think a lot of girls do love boy bands is because when you think about the members of a boy band I mean they're so you know they're very sensitive the way their images are, are made you know these are like very sweet boys that's the way they're portrayed and I think that's very different than the way that a lot of girls interact with boys is that there's something sort of sweet and unassuming and not violent about it you know you know but as the film goes on we can tell that Derek this is a facade in the end he sees Amy as an object he buys her clothes he buys her jewelry he constantly comments on her beauty and appearance it becomes very clear that he is just using her that he just wants her body but I think that can also play into a very complicated fantasy that a lot of women have of being objectified, of of wanting to be seen as pretty, as wanting to be showered with gifts and taken care of. Now, I can't generalize about all women. 
I can only speak from my perspective as well that that is something throughout my life that I have wanted. I wish I was desired or I wish I would be showered with gifts or I wish somebody would come and take care of me, you know. I mean, there's this feminist thing of, oh, we should want to be independent and work. and But I think there's certainly women who would also just like to be taken care of or would like to um, be spoiled by a man. You know, and I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, we all want different things out of relationships and different things in life. And and so I think sometimes these films can, can give us that that sort of vicarious fantasy. And of course, it's revealed that Derek is married and he has two children. So, so of course, it seems he seems so perfect and he's not. And, um, and around this time, you, you know, also, uh, Amy starts to be terrorized by someone. We don't know who it is. There's this, this is where the film sort of becomes a thriller. There's a suspenseful aspect to the film because there's notes being left saying that Amy's a slut. Again, we see the slut shaming as we did and she fought alone. Um, she's, uh, she's gets trapped in a sauna and she can't get out and the heat is done really high up. She's, she's almost run over she's almost run off a road so there's a lot of things that happen where she's basically terrorized by this person and we don't know who it is and of course when amy finds out that derek's married her whole fantasy is destroyed and she's really devastated i almost saw this film in a way as a cautionary tale about men and about how manipulative they are or manipulative they can be throughout this film Derek for me is portrayed as a predator as someone who is just laying it on who's who's lying who's wearing this facade and Amy's not able to see it until later but once she finds out that he's married she starts to wake up to his true nature she realizes that he's not going to leave his wife you know, they only get together when he wants to. He takes her to out-of-the-way places. She feels like his mistress, and she realizes that she basically is, that he's not going to leave his wife for her. Even though Amy ends her relationship with Derek, he continues to pursue her, and he refuses to take no for an answer. So similar to Jace in She Fought Alone, this is a man who will not respect women's boundaries, who will not respect when a woman's when a woman says I'm done with you I'm through I don't want to be around you you know his true colors really start to show I mean he's a slime ball he's a slime ball he's an asshole like <laughs> it's so obvious and she starts to see that and Amy consistently asserts herself and says I you know I, this is over I don't want anything to do with you but he won't listen and just like Jace at the beginning before he raped um caitlin he pursues her he won't take no for an answer these are very subtle ways that men enact violence against women it's not just the physical violence of you know grabbing an arm or raping someone but 
really that violence of I'm not going to respect what you say. You know, if you say it's over, well, I'm going to keep pursuing you. And I'm not going to see you as a human being, basically. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And I'm not going to leave you alone. And um, just there, there are subtle things there of the way that women have to deal with men and, and placate men and how they fear men because of that because they won't leave them alone or they won't just let them live they won't listen in the end the person who is terrorizing Amy for a while she had thought it was perhaps Derek's wife but she finds out it's not Derek's wife in the end we find out that it's actually the sister of Amy's best friend a girl named Jen and Jen's about a year or two older than Amy and Jen had been with Derek so this is a man who chronically you know preys on teenage girls really um, and we see this scene where Jen is going through Amy's pocketbook She's putting on her perfume. And I was thinking about how under patriarchy, women are defined by their relationship to, be, to men and by being wanted by men. So as she's putting on this perfume, and then we see that he gave Jen the same exact perfume. We see that he gave Jen the same lingerie. He gave Jen the same jewelry. So he has this whole playbook that he uses with young women to lure them, to seduce them. What Jen misses is being Derek's object of affection. She misses his gaze. She misses his attention. Now that Amy is the new girl, the new object, the new plaything, Jen's been discarded and she transfers that hatred on to Amy because she had so defined herself by her relationship with Derek and so she attacks Amy and terrorizes Amy you know Amy and her mom go to the police about some of these incidents but the police are not really able to do anything what I did like about this film is that it really focused on the women of the story and their reaction to Derek and you know Derek at one point Derek's wife leaves him she decides to file for file for divorce um, and that seemed like a really powerful moment for his wife like I mean he's been cheating on her for a long time Amy takes it into her own hands to try to find out who's terrorizing her because she knows that the police can't help her. She knows that she's pretty much on her own. So she sort of she sort of comes up with this plot and and of course it doesn't work out. And she's in her car, she's by herself and all of a sudden Jen is there. Jen's in the car with her. And of course this is a moment of like camp and you know it's like melodrama and like how would this really happen but as I say when you watch these TV movies you just have to kind of go with it that's the pleasure of it you know it's that there's these twists that are they seem improbable but you know they they happen in the film 
So Jen is in the car with Amy. She's going to try to kill Amy and make it look like Amy committed suicide. She lights the car on fire. Amy hits the gas. Um, the car is about to go over a cliff. It sounds ridiculous as I'm saying it, but all this stuff's happening. Jen gets trapped in the car. Amy gets out. The car is about to go over a cliff. That's what you need to know. Jen's still in it. And instead of letting the car go over the cliff with Jen in it, Amy helps Jen out of the car. And Jen asks her why. You know, why did you save me? Why did you help me? And Amy says that she knows that Jen didn't know what she was doing. That Jen basically was out of her mind, sort of deranged by her obsession with Derek. She said, you know, Jen says that she loves Derek so much. And Amy says that she knows that more than anybody. That she knows her own, you know, consuming passion for Derek. And so I think she has a little bit of compassion for Jen. But I felt like this was a moment of maybe like female solidarity. Of like two women. Two women. Sort of realizing their obsession and 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 walking back off the cliff of not going over the edge with it although Jen almost does really Jen really just loses it in a way but I thought it was interesting that Amy saved her that Amy was able to see her as someone wrapped up in this fantasy wrapped up in this relationship with Derek and that she could not see clearly you know, that she was so obsessed with him that she couldn't, that she was doing things that she wouldn't normally do. And and love or obsession or lust can really do that to people. They can just lose it. They can lose their minds in a way. And I felt like this was a moment of both of these women maybe letting Derek go of of seeing what this obsession had done to them. I mean, you like to think Jen could just let Derek go at this point. That she almost killed someone, you know. It's sort of a moment in which she comes to her senses, I think. And, of course, Amy's already come to her senses. She's already left Derek. But for a while there, she was in his web. And she was, she was very consumed by him. So... You know, Amy saves Jen, and then later we see Amy graduating high school. She's going to go to college, probably. You know, she's going to go on with her life. You know, she survived <laughs> uh, this relationship. But I thought this was very interesting, the way it ended. It shows um, cheerleaders dancing, rehearsing. Um, like at a field or, or something like that. And lo and behold, who is in the stands? Derek Bradshaw. And I always thought this ending was very interesting because it felt to me like it was this acknowledgement of what a predator he is. That just like he was in the stands watching Amy, he's now in the stands watching another girl. And it will just keep going of course Amy was 18 so he wasn't 
technically committing a crime or anything but he's he's a predator in a way for me like he's scoping out women he's he's doing all these really manipulative things lying to them about being married not being married cheating on his wife you know so we see how he's just going to continue his pattern of behavior just like he did with Jen just like he did with Amy and now he'll find himself you know a new young girl to seduce and manipulate and I guess she'll have to find out for herself you know so it really shows this this really sexual predator aspect of, of some men I think so again with this film I think yes it's about its portrayal of of Amy and women and there's much to unpack there and much to dig into and look at there but this is also a look at masculinity you know not quite as not violent necessarily like she fought alone which is about rape but these subtle ways that men can manipulate women how they can wear this facade and pretend to be this version of themselves that they're not really and they just see women as objects they just see women as something to have sex with um, and that's how he saw Amy you know it was all about the clothes she wore and how she looked and jewelry and she was an object to him something to play with something to to use whereas she wanted like an actual relationship and, an, and a connection and a level of intimacy but he wasn't interested in that he was just interested in pretending and being manipulative and lying and and you really see this sort of male behavior on show in this film um, and and men do not look good in these two films men yeah men are hurtful men are violent men are manipulative so while I think these lifetime films or these made-for-tv films get a really they get a bad reputation you know all the women are portrayed as victims and all the men are portrayed as abusers I think there's something a little bit more complex and nuanced going on you know that as I said in the beginning we cannot deny that women are victims of violence they are they are profoundly vulnerable to violence especially committed by men that is what happens under patriarchy that's what happens under our misogynistic and sexist culture at least these films as problematic as they are in some ways and really complicated my feelings about them are complicated as I've shared with you at least they were talking about it at least they were talking about what a lot of women go through whether it's being slut shamed in high school or getting involved with an older man who is sort of a liar and is manipulative or you know down to the violence of rape you know at least these films were talking about it and they were showing that women are vulnerable to violence and they were talking about the violence against women that really permeates our society so I wanted to look at the films through that lens and look at them in that way because we still have a really long ways to go and anybody that thinks that we've reached the mountaintop or that we have you know eradicated this violence even though it's not as, as visible as it once was it is still there you know women still encounter rape women still encounter sexual assault women still you know are being brutalized and 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 
being devalued in our culture and being treated like second class citizens and feminism has a ways to go we as women have a ways to go until we get to a fully just society that treats women as human beings and protects women and yeah I mean I think these recent rape trials I think a lot of the stuff in the media the election I think so much has reminded us of of the things that are under the surface and that's why I loved Big Little Lies that's why I loved The Keepers that's why I like the documentary Private Violence and I know there's a documentary called The Hunting Ground I haven't seen it about rape on college campuses so we need to talk more about it so that's what these films do and um yeah and while they talk about the violence against women they also talk about masculinity they talk about how men act and how men are allowed to act and how they're allowed to treat women and 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 what they do to women and what they do to each other you know and so yeah it's really it's also about patriarchy you know but um I think I've said everything that I want to say about these two films I I just had really been wanting to talk about them they were you know as much as I love world cinema and and classic cinema and art house cinema when I was growing up, when I was a young girl, when I was a teenager, these were the films that shaped me. These were formative films for me. This this was the, the film that I was being exposed to at a very young age and that in some ways shaped me and shaped how I viewed society, how I, shaped, how I thought about violence against women. Um, so that's why I wanted to revisit these films because they're so much a part of my life. I've watched them multiple times. They're still probably airing on television. They're on YouTube. Many women saw these films. And so I think when we talk about TV movies or made-for-TV movies, I think we should give them maybe a deeper look at times because sometimes there's more there than you think there is. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's a bit problematic but these films had an effect on me and I still remember them and I remember the plots and things that happened and and so um they're these little time capsules you know they they were made in the mid 1990s at a certain time um they have certain ideas and messages in them and it's worth looking at those messages sifting through them seeing what maybe is still relevant maybe what some of these films did good what they said that was very powerful for someone like me who was i was a feminist from a very young age um and so yeah it's it's important to look at the messages that these films have in them i think and and um yeah i'm really glad i did this episode i'm i feel good about it i think i I said as much as I could about these films and as I say they they are on YouTube if you want to check them out or if you like made for TV movies the way I do <laughs> so I will always watch made for TV movies from the 1990s it's just my obsession for some reason gives me some kind of connection to my childhood I think so I'm a very nostalgic person <laughs> especially for my early childhood
But I'm going to stop there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.